0: Welcome to the Beervana Podcast. Hey, Patrick. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? I'm good. Today is gray and rainy,
1: or snowing. <laughs> it could be. Or sunny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was. I thought you were gonna like like riff on the on the beautiful return of rain, cool rainy days in Portland.
1: We. How do we know we're in this? We're in the studio, man could all be changing right now
0: yeah but that's too weird for me i can't think like in the future so i'm just talking about uh, as we record here at the at the x-ray fm studios actually x-ray fm and now am studios the x-ray studios <laughs> yeah what are we gonna say <laughs> uh the x-ray studios in the falcon arts building in north east portland
1: north i think yeah north are we east no nope. we north or north
0: oh full north wow <laughs> we're in the fifth quadrant we are all this time how did i get here
1: you're from selwood you have no idea where you are i'm from southeast portland who knows okay (laughs) uh
0: with me of course is jeff allworth author of several books including the beer bible
1: and the widmer way and with me is patrick emerson a professor of economics at oregon state university and of course as always with us is producer will hi will
0: so today is the first in a series of podcast specials uh, that we're releasing, uh, first in a series of four, uh, where we sit down and have uh, conversations with some of the most interesting and important figures uh, in the Bend brewing
1: scene. Yeah, this we recorded these when we were there recently. That's right. Well, You're really good at this sort of time shift stuff. Yeah, man. <laughs> That's why it could be snowing. Yeah, Who knows we, when this will be yeah, released? We were there a
0: few weeks ago. All right. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, so this was really fun. We got to sit down with uh, four um, really key figures in the Ben Brewing scene, uh, or interesting uh, figures. Uh, Today, what we're going to do is sit down... See how do I even talk about this?
1: Here, let me let me handle that. Today, we're going to listen to an interview we did with the OG of Bend uh, brewing scene, uh, Gary Fish, the founder of The Shoots Brewing.
0: Yeah, and just to set this up, uh, and he'll uh, he talks a lot about the history. But uh, before he arrived, uh, Bend was just a sort of down on its luck uh, uh, timber uh, town. Yep. Uh, well, little tiny I, place. I, I hesitated because it was sort of x timber at that point. Right. but uh, The timber, the timber industry was was dying, and uh, so was Ben. Uh, and Gary Fish showed up, uh, and he was, as you say, the OG. He essentially created the Ben beer scene. Yeah. Uh, almost single-handedly. Um, so we're going to listen to uh, an extended uh, sit-down conversation with Gary, and then uh, when it's over, we'll be back
1: to chat. All right. Should we listen to that wonderful interview? Let's do it. Why wait? Yes. Excellent. <laughs> okay. All right. Roll tape. So we are here with, uh, at Deschutes Brewery in Bend, Oregon with uh, Garrett, founder Gary Fish and brewmaster? Yep. Just brewmaster. Now. Brewmaster uh, Brian Favor. That's it. All right. Thanks for having us.
2: It's great to have you guys here. We, we're, we're a little bit off the beaten path, so it's nice when people come to visit. Well, not so much anymore.
1: Like, <laughs> well, the world is beating up the yeah. path to Bend, Oregon. Yeah, they're, they're beating up <laughs> the path. <Yeah. laughs> so so uh, you are uh, one of the, not, not founding pioneers of, of, of Oregon, uh, but one of the very early uh, brewers. And it would be great to hear a little bit about how you got started here in Bend, and uh, you know a little bit of background as we move forward in time.
2: Well, you know, I, I, I talk about our history and founding, you know, and and it's usually a company with something like you know life is about what happens when you're planning for other things. Right. And uh, we had started really going further back. Uh, I grew up in Northern California. My father was involved in what I. Consider the modern renaissance of the California wine industry. He was a grower back in the late 60s and early 70s. Back in the days of tax shelters, they they owned and managed uh, California agricultural properties. Uh, most were or became vineyard. Uh, I spent a lot of my summers working in various projects of his, you know, building h- worker housing Uh spent uh some time picking prunes alongside the Russian River uh he had some, you know some almond orchards down in Merced and and so forth so uh he was able to to get himself out of that and uh shift gears my background has always been the restaurant business i started as a dishwasher at 16 um, and and worked my way through college, uh, working in restaurants and got graduated from college. and my roommate at the time and boss said, you know why don't you become a manager? something I was never going to do, but you do what's in front of you and I won't do it for long. It won't be a big deal. And worked my way with him through, I think, four restaurants uh, until I finally worked into a sweat equity position. Uh, basically uh, with a, at a restaurant in Salt Lake City. Um, meanwhile, shifting back, my father's uh, business partner was uh, making plans to open a brew pub in Sacramento. Being in Utah, we weren't exactly on the cutting edge of the <laughs> alcoholic beverage industry in <laughs> any way, but my father was looking at this and he was used to a business model where you plant grapes, you wait a minimum of five years before you get any production. You uh, harvest grapes, you uh, extract the juice, you put it in a barrel for a couple of years, you bottle it, you uh, sell it to a wholesaler who wants 120-day terms, and you know the, the, the challenge begins there. Uh, he looked at his partner's uh, business plan, that said basically you can get paid largely in cash about 30 days after laying in your raw materials, and he all of a sudden thought, that sounded like a pretty good <laughs> idea. So he started talking to me, and the whole concept of a brew pub was just burgeoning in Northern California. Uh, there was Triple Rock, I think at the time, it was it was called uh, Rolling Rock in, in uh, or Roaring Rock in Berkeley. Uh, devil mountain and walnut creek there was sacramento brewing company in sacramento i mean a few of the very early entrepreneurs buffalo bills and hayward Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, we started talking about it and and realized that maybe this was the moment where kind of the paradigm shifts in beer like we believed he had been when the paradigm shifted in wine i mean i I, my first job in the restaurant business was in a uh, a winery themed restaurant in an upscale community in the bay area and uh that was even then in the early 70s if you ordered a carafe of house wine it typically came out of a gallon jug Mm. with the gallo name on the label, and uh, that eventually became, uh, you know, California varietal wine, as, as people became more familiar with the terms Cabernet, Chardonnay, etc., uh, and, and, you know, they became more interested in that kind of an experience. We saw that same thing happening in beer, as we rationalized at the time but the beer market was considerably larger than the wine market. And you know maybe this was the time to, to do something and we believed we could manage risk. Okay, great. I've got the experience to start a restaurant. I don't know anything about beer. Um, so I hired myself out to my dad's business partner's son to help him get started in his uh, brew pub in Sacramento. Uh, because he didn't know any more about the restaurant business than he did about the beer business. And I said, basically, I hired myself out to him for free uh, and said, I'll help you get the restaurant started just basically to be around and see what mistakes you make.
1: Mm.
2: Ed Brown started the Rubicon Brewing Company in 1987, um, and I I worked with him through that process all the time, splitting my time between my parents' house in the Bay Area Uh, Sacramento with the Rubicon Brewing Company, my wife was still in Salt Lake City, and I was also touring all over Northern California looking for a location where we could start our own brew pub, uh, with no success at all. Both my parents were born and raised in Oregon, uh, and after a college reunion in Corvallis, came through to visit some friends in Bend and couldn't stop talking about what a neat place it was. I mean, it's a it was a vastly different place back then than it is today. Uh, but still, uh, we came up here for a weekend, talked to everybody we could think of that would have an interest in the project, from uh, bankers to realtors to developers to uh, OLCC to uh, city planning. You know, and everybody said, I I, I don't know anything about it, but it sounds great and I'll be your first customer. So uh, we were able to find a a building that we could afford to purchase as opposed to only rent in California. In 1987, the the California real estate market was peaking. Of course, it's certainly gone (laughs) past those uh, stages, but... uh, we began to uh, to develop a project in Bend, not knowing anything about what we didn't know. Here, Bend was you know twelve fifteen thousand people right. at that time, uh, a depressed former timber town. The uh, the the last sawmill was in its in its final dying throws mm-hmm. uh, in Bend, and uh, it was a very very depressed place. Uh, and very blue-collar, not exactly uh, the, the demographic for craft beer in the mid to late 80s. But we didn't know what we didn't know, so we <laughs> charged ahead. And I'm I'm working on the project and managing construction and doing all that. Uh, and we began to go. We we opened up uh, June 27th. Our anniversary is coming up in a couple of weeks week and a half uh and uh and we began uh challenging times to say the least uh people i i i chuckle now that I think the only reason people came out to see us was to watch us fail. You know, you can't take your eyes off a car wreck. Right? And and that's basically what happened. I was forced to hire 12 of a grand total of 15 applicants. Um, and that was quite a crew. <laughs> so,
1: you know. Yeah. Uh, you told me, I don't know if it was in private or not, that you had a kind of a, a rule about uh, a reason for not being at work I don't know if yeah, you, does that, does yeah that there public
2: was there there was actually a rule it never made it into the employee manual but it was something we discussed openly in employee meetings which was being in jail is not an excuse for missing <laughs> work and uh and I, I actually violated that rule myself <laughs> I actually bailed a guy out uh, of jail the jail was right across the street <laughs> from the brew pub and uh, he was in for a DUI or something, and I needed a warm body in the kitchen. <laughs> and I, I had to—I I went over and paid the the bail and got him out. And and uh, so I, you know, those were those were challenging times. Even when you establish a rule like that, something ha- you know things happen, and, and you never know what where you're gonna end up. Yeah. Uh, but you know we grew. Uh, John Harris was our, our brewer at the time, incredibly talented guy. Uh, at a time when there were no trained brewers right. in the market, uh, and I was wrestling with, I was already the, uh, the the restaurant manager, the kitchen manager, you know, the the business manager, everything else, uh, and I was wrestling with whether or not I could do the brewing as well. We had a brewing consultant, Frank Appleton, very talented guy, uh, lots and lots of experience, but he was only temporary. He, his life was up in British Columbia, and, and I you know, working with him to see if we could extend his contract for another month or so, buy me more time. And then we found John. And uh, very fortunate, incredibly talented guy, taught me uh, a great deal of what I know about beer. and. The beer was always good. For all the things we were doing wrong, the beer was was never one of them. And, you know, we had some frightening moments, though, but we had made a a commitment to ourselves and to everybody else that we were never going to sell a beer that we weren't proud of. And that first November, December 1988, uh, Christmas is coming. I had convinced Mount Bachelor to put our beer on tap. Not because we wanted to develop any wholesale business, but only because we wanted to uh, get the attention of the tourists, the idea that they might stop by the pub on their way down the mountain. And uh, uh, I had convinced them to, to put us on tap. Fortunately, it was a late season uh that year and so we, you know they weren't open for thanksgiving and we bought ourselves a little bit of time but we got to a point where we got an infection in the brew house and we couldn't make mm. a beer that we wanted to sell mm. and we dumped 10 straight batches wow. down the drain at a time when we couldn't <laughs> afford it right. uh we couldn't afford the raw materials we couldn't afford the time and and we certainly couldn't afford not to have beer on tap yeah um but we did anyway, and finally, uh, uh, with the help of Dave Logsdon, uh-huh. uh, who John had known, who was I think just coming off his stint at Full Sail as their opening brewer, uh, came down and helped us go through the whole thing, soup to nuts, and we re- rebuilt basically the whole brewery and uh, found several glaring mistakes that we had made, <laughs> um, and and got the beer cleaned up and just in time for the the holiday uh, tourist business. Very good. And uh, so at any rate, that, that's how we got started.
1: Wow. Um, so in the early days when uh, you didn't know that much about beer and the, your customers didn't know about, that much about beer, were people attracted to Deschutes primarily for the beer or the restaurant or some combination?
2: Well, the restaurant wasn't really operating the way uh, I would want it to, and and uh, I mean we go into chapter and verse with stories about that. But uh, I think you know there was novelty. Mm-hmm. We had always been treated well by the, the bulletin, the local paper. Um, I think that there, there was it was a unique concept in, in downtown Bend. Uh, the beer was good, and uh, I think that that was something that we didn't. Uh, uh, you know, we didn't really a, a appreciate maybe as much as we should. Uh, we were basically serving burgers and fries mm-hmm. uh, and and maybe not doing that good of a job at that <laughs> uh, at the time. So, um, but, you know, the, the, the big break really came when Jim Kennedy, who owned Admiralty Beverage, called because John knew him, mm-hmm from Admiralty and and John's experience at McMiniman's uh, before coming to Deschutes. Uh, and, And Jim said, look, there are some tavern owners that have been through Bend on holiday. They tried your beer, they like it. This stuff's just catching on. They want to sell some kegs, you know. Would you send us some kegs? Thinking, well, God, you know, we've got the beer. We definitely need the money Sure, you know right. you know where I can get some kegs because right. uh, we were serving out of serving tanks. Right. We didn't have any kegs. Wow! And uh, so Jim scrounged up some beat up old used, uh, you know, the old Golden the Gate Golden double Gates. valve nice. kegs, <laughs> and, bol- uh, bol- <laughs> and you know, all of a sudden we we sent our first pallet of of beer on the back of a load of recycled cardboard, headed to Portland. <laughs> And we were in the wholesale manufacturing business. We had no idea. Right. And, but then, it, you know, the first, he, they, he ordered one pallet and then two pallets and then four pallets and then eight pallets. And the business grew. And we didn't, for the next five years, we didn't have to sell any beer. We just filled orders. All we had to do was make the beer and keep it good. Right. And uh, we began to grow. And, and the business expanded out the back. We were adding tanks. We added on to the building. We used a a building across the street behind us as kind of a warehouse. We were driving a forklift between the two down the sloping uh, parking lot. We had a custom set of chains made for that forklift (laughs) for the winter. Nice. Now you've never really lived until you've <laughs> that black ice with a full load of kegs yeah, and, I bet. and cars parked on both sides. <laughs> I mean, you know you're alive at moments <laughs> like that. And uh, but you know we were we we're going, and then pretty soon we gotta. A letter from the city, something to do with operating an industrial operation in the downtown commercial business district. Oh, and man. I mean we were loading semis in the middle of the street. We were <laughs> you know, we we were just filling orders. We you know, we we're just trying to keep up.
1: Yeah.
2: And uh, all of a sudden it, it hit us that we we really can't do this and we need to we can't shrink back to what we were we've got to keep growing and so that's when we found the first piece of property over here where we're sitting now and uh and began to try and figure out how to how to grow uh because i didn't i didn't know anything about running a manufacturing operation i was a pretty good restaurant manager but you know that this was all beyond me but we started sending our brewers to to school to increase their skill sets, uh, started looking for more professionals and learned a lot about what that word means (laughs) or doesn't mean. Right.
1: And, uh, and, and we grew. So let's talk a little bit about the beer. Uh, you started out as an English pub brewery, basically. You had, uh, sessionable English style beers, Mm -hmm. uh, pale ale, porter most famously, but, um, uh. You had a bitter that was at early on a, a, a fan favorite. And a Still of, is <laughs> here and now. <then>. That's right. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that, this was a different era in brewing, and you've been around for 31 years. Um, in the 19 late 1990s, early 2000s, everything started to turn to hops, and you guys came out with uh, you know a series of IPAs that were flagships, and kind of moved in the direction of hops. And things really started to accelerate in, uh, you know, the last five or ten years. We talk a little bit about how your beers have evolved and how you're, what you're thinking about beer now, and how you're, how, how how that uh, process is a part of serendipity. You know, how much is serendipity and yeah. how much is planning, and and how did you get from there to here?
2: Well, there's there's a there's a lot of both serendipity and planning. You know the one thing we knew and this this really came from kind of my father's experience with the wine business was you know what whatever went in the bottle was going to be more important than what went on the bottle what went in the keg was going to be what more important than what was on the tap handle and uh you know our original three beers the first beer we ever brewed was Cascade Goldendale. The only reason we brewed it first is because it was the lightest beer, it needed the, the, the least amount of raw materials, and if we had to dump it, it was going to be the cheapest one to dump.
1: That was good thinking. So,
2: that was as sophisticated as, as we were. Then Bachelor Bitter and Black Butte Porter that, that you've already mentioned, the original formulations were done by Frank Appleton as part of his consulting agreement. Uh, John, of course, had his hand in the evolution of those brands as well as formulating Mirror Pond, Jubilee, Obsidian Stout, et, et cetera. Uh, but uh, you know, we we are the, the concept was, you know, Bud Light was the largest selling beer essentially brand in the world. Uh, we knew that we couldn't make Bud Light to compete with that our best bet from our perspective was to be as far from Bud Light as we could, we could be. We needed to stand out for the products that we were producing, as well as, you know, our fundamental belief, and again, this kind of comes from the wine business, you know, when when most of America was drinking wine out of a gallon jug that generally said Gallo on the label, uh, until, you know, high quality varietal wines made in America by a, a winery you could visit and a, and a winemaker that you could talk to and all that uh, became important in the consumer's experience uh, you know the the quality of those uh, wines and, and going back to the first time California winemakers sent wine famously now to uh, the competition in Paris right. mm-hmm. uh, you know quality, being able to stand up against those uh, wines, and for us, against the beers made in, in Britain, in Germany, in Belgium, even though Belgium wasn't on the radar screen so much back then, we chose to focus on uh, England, uh, largely because British-style ales uh, were different, but also relatively simple to make. Right. The fermentation was warm and fast. Uh, we could have saleable beer uh, with two weeks of conditioning time in about three weeks. And that was our that was the way we made we made beers. And, and, and Frank was a, a very traditional English brewer, and he would only use whole hops, full conditioning time. Uh, you could find it, but that wasn't really necessary. It was important. You know, there wasn't filtration involved. I remember I bought a small filter when we first opened and never used it. Mm -hmm. It got kind of rusty sitting in the back and I ended up selling it for scrap or something, unused, completely (laughs) unused. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, those were the things that we believed were important in this very, very uh, young industry and market that we didn't know where it was going to go but we believed that and people would come people who I respected said you know why don't you sell Bud Light in your pub right. you'd mm-hmm. get more customers mm-hmm. don't you want their business you know that's kind of a hard thing to, to explain to somebody of course I want their business but I want to Try my business plan before I start shifting it, and I would like to see if I can attract them on our terms, in terms that we believe we can be successful at, rather than capitulating uh, just because what we're pro- providing is not familiar. So you know, we fortunately that stuff we began to catch on before we were really uh, confronted with a reality that suggested we needed to change our business plan.
1: You have, I've been doing all the question
0: asking, so you have anything? Well, I was just, I wanted to follow up on your question and and talk about sort of now uh, the evolution of of the the consumer, the craft beer consumer and how you uh, try to meet them where they're at today because That's a lot different than Ooh, english style yeah this is,
2: well this is the this is the subject of a lot of conversation these yeah. days, and you guys you guys know because you spend a lot of time in in and around the industry you know trying to make sense of this like we are mm-hmm. uh, you know it's 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 been reported I, I i made fun of Tom long years ago when he suggested the craft beer, craft beer was all about a promiscuous consumer mm-hmm. as though that was kind of an insult right. Um, and, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things, the only person that's never wrong by definition is the consumer. (laughs) So, you know, we can't, even though promiscuous is a term that showed up in the Oregonian, it's, it's, it's a term that, that people are beginning to use more and more these days. Sorry guys, that's
0: a rookie
2: error. That, that, uh, you know, uh, so where do, where do you go to find a consumer that doesn't want the same beer two beers in a row, yeah. that has that has uh, cultivated a, a retailer that no matter if you're the best selling beer they've ever had, you you run through one small keg and you're out. Right. right. I, I mean you know to me that doesn't make sense. I'm, I'm I'm struggling, but we can't spend time trying to figure out why this isn't behaving the way we want why the, why this consumer isn't behaving the way we want them to we have to go and find them where they are yeah. and engage them and excite them and uh, try and keep them interested and so you know we we're, we're trying to do that while you know maintaining a business model that suggests it's it's hard to make a single beer you know one batch beers and and <laughs> let the consumer know well enough in advance you know to, to, to move product through a, 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 a still relatively organized market and
0: Did, this is a so oh, sorry I was calling up yeah I was just gonna say uh, do you think there used to be brand loyalty and now that's gone or is there still customers that will look for to shoot beer first? I think there's
2: brand familiarity I, I don't know the loyalty well there is a I, I guess, you know, we're talking about a consumer that, that still, at this point, amounts to a relatively small part of the market. And even, you know, if you look at the market as the United States, uh, Portland and even Seattle are still relatively small pieces of that, even though yeah. they're our largest and most important markets. Right. Uh, so we're, you know, trying to do two things, try to meet that consumer where they are, which is sometimes a challenge for us because we can't be new again. Right. You know, we're thirty one years old. We can't be new. We have to be who we are. Mm-hmm. And I think we've developed some credibility for being able to produce good beer and you know, but still the consumer, oh I've tried them. Right. I wanna I wanna go to this guy, you know, I've tried that one, I've tried that one, I've tried that one, I've tried that one. This one I haven't tried. I'll have that one, right. and and you know, maintaining a place so the consumer in the marketplace so the consumer can find you is is at times challenging. Yeah. Well, but with that being said, we're still uh, cognizant of the fact that that there is a consumer out there that retains some brand familiarity and brand loyalty that understands when they see a package of ours that that is a beer they can rely on yeah. that that they can, that is dependable and 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 the flavor profile is is what they're looking for and you know we continue to to work hard with that consumer as well
1: right one thing that we always talk about the brewing industry like it's a monolith but deschutes brewery is really different than the tap room that sells uh you know 1500 barrels and can sell four packs outside of the tap room you have a much bigger footprint you have a much bigger audience Uh, and i'm wondering how uh as the industry changes what does it look like when you're 300, 350,000 barrel brewery, whatever. How, how big? Well, we
2: we're yeah, we're about three hundred now. We were much larger a couple of years ago. Hmm.
1: Um, That's a lot of beer. It I mean, is a lot of beer. Heard. in are not this market. You're not going to be. You're not going to be able to play in the one-off marketplace. So
2: we're part of that of that uh, market segment that is being hit the hardest yeah. in this current market condition that we're talking about. Um, so, but again, we can't spend time lamenting, oh, poor me, we've got to go. And quite frankly, you know, we love beer and we love the the variety as well. So we can begin to, you know, use that. And I mean, we have two pubs, both have well over 20 taps Mm -hmm. in each one. We have a tasting room with even more than that. We have a pilot brewery where we can brew up to 20 brews a week. Mm -hmm uh and and do a lot of experimentation we've invested heavily in our ability to be creative mm-hmm. and we've got some of the most talented it, brightest people in the industry uh doing really good work and you know we think that that's something that you know that's an asset that we can't overlook right so you know we're trying to make sense of this marketplace but more than anything else. We're trying to make sure we keep that consumer interested and and hopefully uh, excited when they try the beer.
0: Yeah. And one advantage that uh, breweries of your scale have, of course, is scale economy. So you, uh, uh, you have a consistent quality, but also um, uh, lower cost than a tiny guy. How price sensitive are consumers in this segment is that something that's going to compete or? Uh,
2: you know it, it seemed like we we went through a cycle and i'll call it the ballast point cycle <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, because ballast point was really i mean they broke a lot of barriers down yeah. in terms of pricing and when they were selling 14 and 15 dollar six packs of yeah. ipa yeah the rest of us are going, how the hell did they do that? <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it was, you know, uh, something that really caught everybody's attention. And, um, but I think since then, as that kind of balloon has deflated somewhat, uh, you know, we want to uh, still be able to provide value and there are a lot of different ways to provide value in a marketplace, but we want to provide value to the consumer, and we want to attract them by that. Pricing has certainly come down off of that ballast point high, uh, and I think it continues to. Um, it continues to be uh, a challenge to try and find out in this organized marketplace how to. Uh, get value to the consumer uh, when all the product has to go through a fairly narrow mouth of a funnel that is the wholesale and retail tiers and we can't really uh, we definitely can't dictate pricing to either one of them Mm -hmm. because that's antitrust Mm -hmm. Uh, we can work with them on some strategies but at the end of the day they determine what markup they take I mean we've got challenges now everybody likes to pile on the wholesalers you know they're they're with us in trying to build these strategies sometimes the retailers uh you know have who are trying to deal with this massive cooler full of beer um and their own cost structures and how they believe they can maximize their profit you know it it's it's a very interesting and complex marketplace That we've created, um, and and you know we're not done with our work here. We're you know we're working really hard to try and figure out how to get value to the consumer. Meanwhile, cost of raw materials continues to climb. Yeah. Uh, you know all these new age, modern hop varieties aren't cheap. Right. You know especially when the consumer seems to want them in large quantities <laughs> in, in the beer that they're drinking. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, the market is a, is a very fungible thing, and you know that. Mm-hmm. And we tend to, to disregard the market or treat it as though uh, it's a, uh, a, a fairly uh, direct cause-benefit uh, uh, relationship to what happens when in fact it's not at all.
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, what, what lessons have you drawn in your 31 years as a beer maker in America, uh, as you've grown from a, a brew pub making, you know, a few hundred barrels of beer to 300,000? Um, what, what, what's changed in the market? What's changed in your brewery? What are your...
2: Well, there's there's a huge amount that's changed in both places, but I think one, that, one thing that hasn't changed is that To me, quality still matters. Mm -hmm. It's still number one. It still is more important what goes in the bottle than what goes on it. It's more important than what goes in the keg than what's on the tap handle. Uh, And ultimately, and I say that with marketing people here in the room, but uh, it it is a, uh, you know, at, at some point, and quality is a term that I don't think we've really come to grips with in terms in craft beer, uh-huh. because we can talk about quality in terms of the ingredients that go into it, we, the amount of care, the amount of quote passion, right? Love that word. No, I don't. <laughs> um, and you know, but but still, you know, that little guy on the corner, maybe you know some of these guys are doing brilliant stuff and really creative, really interesting stuff, uh, but some are not, right? And But yet, there there is space allocated for them in a market that, you know, that where where young, new, small, hyper local,
1: Mm
2: -hmm. you know, are things we value more than maybe the flavor experience.
1: Uh, You had a plan a few years ago to uh, open a brewery in Virginia and i'm sure that our listeners are interested to know what's going on with that (laughs) we still do okay
2: uh we own the land we bought it uh you know when you go look at these things we looked at over a hundred locations uh i mean the, the the process that landed us in roanoke and all that is really something and and you know the city did certain things to try and attract us they were going to buy us the land if we hit certain benchmarks developed it spent a certain amount of money hired a certain number of people etc cetera, etc cetera. you know it wasn't a huge deal but we ended up buying the land in order to divest ourselves from their timeline and since then we've forgone all whatever uh, incentives there might have been attached to that deal, and right now we have we operate a tasting room downtown Roanoke, and the land is sitting there ready to go whenever we are. Mm-hmm. But you know, we've we've lost over 20% of our volume in the last two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're not going where we're, we're going to try very hard not to do anything foolish, yeah. Uh, you know, this could be a potentially very expensive uh endeavor uh and very high risk and right now uh, everything we know is telling us not now (laughs) so that's what we're sitting we haven't committed to anybody to do anything it could sit there for a couple of years it could sit there for 10 it could somebody could come along and say hey i really want to put in a cupcake factory there and i'm going to give you the and we'd probably you know Look at that, nobody's doing it, it's not on the market, we're not trying to sell it, I don't wanna paint a different picture (laughs) here. But, you know, this is a dynamic marketplace and we're a part of that marketplace and we don't always have control about what's coming next.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like one of the things that happened when all of the breweries started to uh, develop a national footprint and build different plants was this renewed focus on independence. And uh, I'm sorry, uh, local. Mm-hmm. And so, how does a brand from Oregon travel? And and how is that changing?
2: We have a. I'll, 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 how about a brand from Bend?
1: Yeah, <laughs> all right.
2: <laughs> I mean, I had a conversation. We were having a, a board meeting, and I, uh, one of our board members, is a is a expert in the food industry and has a large. Food brokerage and knows a lot about it, and he's he happens to be a very very old friend of mine, and uh, we're sitting at the bar in a in a restaurant in Portland, and we weren't on tap, Um, and and we're talking about the dynamics of the marketplace and this kind of a thing. I said, watch, and I called over the, the the bartender and I said, well, do you have any deschutes? She says. Uh, no. I said, well, why, why don't you? She said, well, we only serve small and local. Uh-huh. And I said, oh, Deschutes <laughs> isn't local. I mean, we have a fairly large brew pub about four blocks away. <laughs> and, you know, we're well within kind of the 500 mile radius that determine, you know, all those things. And like, she says, oh, well, small. Um, Clearly, she wasn't interested in discussing the the company's policies on on what gets on tap and what isn't. But I looked at my friend and I said, that's what we deal with every day. That's what our guys deal with every single day in the marketplace. And how do you add value, how do you demonstrate value when uh, the market requires things we cannot be? We cannot be small, we cannot be hyper-local, uh, we cannot be new. Right. <laughs> we have to add value X those things. Yeah. So, you know, we've got, like I said, a lot of really smart people doing really good work, working their tails off to try and solve this. But, but it, it's a fascinating uh, thing, I think, to, to look at a marketplace that appears not to behave rationally and value the things that historically they've always valued. But it's a new dynamic.
0: So I've always wondered, uh, and I'm just curious, have you ever had a conversation about opening up a brewery in Roanoke but not calling it Deschutes, creating a new brand for the East Coast?
2: Well, we've talked about uh, all kinds of things, you know, and and we've talked about, you know, what the value of the Deschutes brand is, both here and, you know, the further we get from Bend. Uh, you know, we, we still, we sell a fair amount of beer in Philadelphia, Washington, DC. Right. You know, we we haven't gotten to New York, Boston, anything like that. We're not planning on on that kind of expansion at this point in time. Uh, Roanoke was supposed to be designed to do that. Right Right now until, again, until we get more clarity mm-hmm. on what the future holds, we're just gonna wait. Yeah. You know, we don't think that that we could, uh, uh, you know, really change direction with that uh, land at this point in any time frame that would make sense. So we so we wait and hopefully we'll get that clarity in the next few years.
1: So uh, we've run a little bit long and I want to let you get back to your day, but uh, I kind of had a. i telecasted by misspeaking in my last question this independence thing um for a brewery your size uh there are a lot of people a lot of the breweries that you compete against in your size category are not independent does independence is that something you think about is it something that matters to the brand or to the brewery itself you know i i i think about it a little not a lot um you
2: know i was involved for years with the brewers association and they've come out with the, the you know the small and independent seal we use it um you know i i think you know 10 barrel uh their their pub is a, about half a mile from here uh-huh. uh I, you know i don't see them you know when anheuser bush bought them uh you know, I drive by their place frequently and you see how many people are there. And it seemed like the numbers went down for a little while, but they're they're as busy as they ever were. Their new pub out in the north side of town, they seem to be busy. And people, you know, I was reading somebody talking about this on one of the uh, 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 forums online, and you know, I, I don't I don't really care uh, if the beer's good. That says it all. Uh, other somebody else is saying. I'll never go near them and busch should whatever I, I I don't get the chance to spend time really lamenting those things the, our local paper called me the day after the deal went down and said you know what do you think I said about what you know <laughs> well what about Tenborough what about them you know they sold yeah, I heard uh, well you know if you ran into those guys on the street what would you tell them probably say congratulations i mean those things don't happen overnight you've got to plan and execute that strategy and if they did that and it was successful well good for that what am i going to say (laughs) you know i i you know we've we've chosen something of a different path yeah you know but at the same time i know i'm not going to live forever And I'm guessing my kids probably aren't going to take over the company. This is not a secret, you know. Um, But for the time being, we're still having fun. We're still being creative. We have no plans to transition ownership in any way, shape, or form, other than, you know, a small part of the company is owned by an employee stock ownership plan. Um, That will grow as it makes sense, but the idea that that could reasonably purchase the remaining stock in the company is not a practical expectation Um, and whether or not that's actually the best management structure for the company itself or ownership structure is subject to considerable debate so you know we're still, I'm not going anywhere (laughs) we're still, you know we've we've got a lot of things left to do
1: well thank you so much for your time Uh, this has been I'm sorry, I
2: kind of took no, all the uh, time, Brian. <laughs> this is great. I get
1: to hear Gary talk about these, yeah, these stories. You yeah. get to hear me talking. <laughs> you seem like a shy, retiring guy who doesn't share his opinions very much. I'm sure it's a rare experience. I have that. I have moments. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Cheers. Enjoyed it. Yeah.
0: So that was great. Uh, many thanks to Gary Fish for spending such uh, a long time with us and being so forthcoming about the. Uh, I don't know, headwinds that they're facing.
1: Yeah, we were a little, you know, they, they have had some headwinds, as you heard, and we were a little reluctant to throw that up and be rude, but we did, because, you know, you got to ask, and he was great to just answer them totally, honestly, and uh, transparently. Was yeah,
0: great. very forthcoming, um, uh, very genuine, That's yeah. what actually I really appreciate about him. Uh, I'll just mention that after that, uh, we were given a brewery tour by Brian Favor, who was there in the interview?
1: Yes, <laughs> I we, tried.
0: I answered. I asked a question about sort of what kind of beers are you brewing now, and turned straight to
1: him. And but nope, nope, man. Gary, that's Gary Fisher's brewery. He's going to answer those questions. Uh, it's funny because I think Gary aspired to let Brian talk, but yeah. oh yeah, 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 no, yeah There was
0: no, there's no uh, ill intent at all. Yeah, uh, it's just that Gary was in a talkative mood and um, Brian was deferential, as I suppose you would be. That's right. Uh, but. Uh, after that, unfortunately, not on tape. Uh, he gave us an extensive tour of the of the brewery. The facility there is uh, very big, as you might imagine, but pretty impressive. What's one of the most interesting things is it's gone. It went under a big expansion, and so you can kind of see the shell of the old brewery inside the big the big brewery. You can see where the roof line used to go. They still have the roof, not really trusses, beams, whatever. Yeah. Uh, so um, that was interesting. And,
1: and, and they have the whole intact, they have a 250-barrel brewery now, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And they have the intact 50-barrel brewery, which is actually the more gracious and beautiful space, uh, which we got to see, which was cool.
0: Yeah. Which Brian really liked. He said, it's great brewing up here because you've got a great view.
1: Yeah. And it's more manual, so more and, hands-on.
0: And more of a vertical brewery. I, I, I yeah. really appreciated that. You yeah. Mean, three you
1: stories. Don't, you don't see that much
0: anymore. Um, well, at least I don't. Yes. So uh, so that was really nice. He gave us a, he gave us a tour. And, and in the tour... Um, Something that really stuck out to me, apropos of what Gary was saying, that look, we are what we are. We're a, you know, a big brewery. We've been around for a while, uh, and the market is shifting underneath our feet, and we're doing our best to try and meet the market where it is. Yeah. Um. There's no doubt whatsoever that they produce exceptional beer, mm-hmm. super high quality. I've um. I told off off tape. I told Gary that. I can honestly say that I don't think I've ever had a bad Deschutes beer in the sense that it wasn't well-crafted and well-made. might have been in a style that I wasn't particularly uh, fond of, but right. uh, but uh, it's still one of the places I go to in Portland, the, the Portland pub, because I'm pretty sure that I'm going to have consistent quality and, and good beer across across the, uh, the market. Anyway, the uh, thing that I saw there was their massive bottling line, Yeah, really super impressive. I started singing the Haas and Pfeffer and, you know, (laughs) old people will understand where that comes from. So it was a very Shirley intro.
1: Back in the 1970s, there was a television Uh, show. And
0: I forget what brewery they were supposed to be at.
1: Yeah, I think it was a fake brewery. It was, but it
0: it had a name. Anyway, uh, they have a brewing line that looks just like that. Just thousands of bottles flying by.
1: Yeah, I think they said 500 bottles a minute.
0: And what's interesting is the market, at least in Oregon, is shifting Incredibly fast and radically toward cans.
1: Right, and they have a canning line, but it's nowhere near as big and can't handle the volume. Uh, wouldn't wouldn't be able to handle the volume of beer they make. Yeah, yeah,
0: it's tiny. It's out back. It's, they say I think less than ten percent of their beer goes in cans. Yeah, as if 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 I recall. That's right. And so here's here's a perfect illustration of the difficulty of being in the situation where they are, which they can't. They're not as nimble. They've invested in this huge bottling line, most of their beer still goes in bottles, but consumers are now saying, look, we like it in cans. Uh, And so um, there's just a lot of ways in which uh, his uh, interview um, really uh, made me sympathetic towards the difficulty of sitting in that chair and trying to figure out how are we going to steer this brewery in a direction that, that works.
1: Yeah, and one thing after we we turned off the tape, we continued to talk, which was unfortunate that we didn't capture some of that because it was great stuff. But um, I did some quick math on my phone and said because Gary was talking about how it's, you know, anxious making to have a big brewery that you have to sell all this beer and you're not really sure, uh, uh, you know, what what your next hit is going to be that's going to propel the market. And I did some quick math and and they make a hundred million. Twelve ounce cans or bottles of beer a year, and I mentioned that to the Gary and said that that would give me the willies. And he said, "That's not right. That can't be right." And, we, <laughs> and so he so he 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 gave us the numbers and we multiplied the them am out and yeah. the
0: math again. And At, you were right. And it
1: was right. It was hundred million cans. So can you imagine trying to sell a hundred? It's just it's uh, it would really freak me out to be on the hook for selling that much well, beer. And and then he talked about yeah. Not only is it selling that beer, but I've got. Five hundred employees or whatever exactly. he said. Exactly, employees and their families to yeah. to
0: support, uh, which is you know uh, uh, a very I'm sobering. To, yeah, thank you. That's yeah. the word I was looking for. A very sobering thing. You know, when you're sitting in his chair, you realize that you know I'm very proud of creating this engine of of economic activity and growth and and all the things that people can do because you're there. So but, yeah, it's yeah. a responsibility.
1: And they got they got employees putting kids through college and stuff, and yeah, so they're. The the anxiety is there for a lot of different reasons, yeah. so. But uh, you know the the other side is, and uh, this is just a big takeaway we talked about in, in the last episode is, the legacy of this brewery is not just the beer that Deschutes sells, but the entire Bend brewing scene and and the success of all these subsequent brewers that were made possible by creating this you know plowing the field and and getting the the field the the ground ready for. Uh, all these breweries will come later. So yeah. the legacy of Bend is 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 a part of Deschutes' legacy.
0: Yeah, and not too long ago they were growing like gangbusters. They were looking to expand. Uh, they had they bought property in uh, uh, in Virginia, and he was very forthcoming about how that's completely on hold now.
1: Yeah, um, and they're not sure what's going to happen if anything. He didn't. He that's. Didn't, the, the, I think that really speaks well to the brewery that they were so cautious uh, yeah. in going into this that they have not. Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> they have mortgaged the future on this project that might really take the brewery down.
0: Yeah, yeah. He didn't. He didn't uh, really rise to my question, um, which I don't blame him. But I still am fascinated by this idea. Which, if you're a brewery and I you have all this know. capital and you can spend it, why not just start a new brewery uh, on the East Coast rather than having another Deschutes production facility? Uh, start a new brand. Now I understand there's a lot of capital in a brand, but uh, but um, you can you know you can kind of do it really well relative to locals uh, you can set up a brewery you know how to do all this stuff you kind of understand brewing you have talent you've got all the stuff you've probably a lot of economies of scale and marketing and stuff anyway yeah, I didn't... know
1: we've we talked about that on the podcast before too so I was really happy you asked but he, <laughs> he, he didn't go for it maybe maybe he's been considering it since then and, and uh, he'll, he'll get back in touch with us and, and send us a check
0: yeah I'm, uh, Gary I'm available for consulting that's
1: right yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> alright well uh, once again we really appreciate uh, both uh, Brian and Gary for spending the time with us uh, Brian took us around uh, let us taste
1: really good beers uh, one of them was that Sabro beer we mentioned in the last pod right which I think had Citra in it and I do believe it was a product. it was a, it was a version they're gonna release as a seasonal maybe this fall or something so look for that yeah uh, we and, really liked it it was really nice
0: yeah and they're they're really excited about their new beer which is the Little Squeezy yep uh, which is a uh, sessionable hazy IPA, essentially, right? Yep. Yeah, uh, and that's really good.
1: Yeah, not not super hazy. This is the, another trend that we're seeing in the Northwest is hazy went really milkshakey, and now we're kind of coming back off of that. Yes,
0: and Deschutes is very modest in the in the amount of, of amount of haze, which yeah. I appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a nice it's a nice looking beer. Okay, uh, so uh, that ends our little segment of our uh, extra special pod. <laughs> I love like the extra in there. <laughs> so, uh, look for the next three pods as we uh, explore further the Bend uh, beer scene. We'll, re- we'll be releasing those in the next few weeks. Uh, a few words going out. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, maybe,
1: maybe, probably Hopefully. by now. By yes. now, oh
0: yeah, by now it's for sure. Uh, that helps listeners uh, find the show. You rate us, you uh, review
1: us, five stars, and please. You subscribe,
0: yes. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us your questions or comments. We have now an official Birvanapod Twitter that is remarkably at Birvanapod Twitter yeah. <laughs> No, Birvanapod. <laughs> oh, God. On Twitter. Oh, so good. Uh, yeah. At Birvanapod. Uh, so you can uh, communicate us through that uh, Twitter, uh, yeah. you can DM us, or you can uh, comment. Um, uh, hopefully we'll be keeping that active.
1: We Come on, man. Yeah. By the way- we Of didn't course make, we're going to be keeping that active.
0: We didn't mention this in the last pod, and this is I'll this is correct the Lacuna now, which is uh, we had my son who was taking f- photographs uh, of all of these stops. Yeah. We've uh, got to get those up. We'll get those pictures up uh, soon, probably on the Birvana Somewhere. Vlog Facebook page,
1: maybe? Uh, well we're releasing
0: I'd, some of them through the Twitter.
1: Definitely on the Twitter. Yeah. Okay.
0: Uh, so visit us there. You can also uh, send comments to Jeff. Uh, at. Uh, uh, to Jeff at birvanablog
1: Yeah, let us know what you thought of this, and uh, we'll throw that in the mailbag.
0: And as always, Jeff blogs at birvana blog. He tweets at birvana, and he writes lots of books. Go buy them.
1: And Patrick tweets at beeronomics and of course, birvana pod. That's right. Uh, so until next time. All right, Patrick. No, no, uh, no, no tasting this time. So <laughs> we'll right. uh, we'll just fist bump again. I guess. All right. Oh yeah. Okay. Adios. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>